From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcasts, conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. And in this episode, we will hear about what God is doing among the persecuted church around the world. Our guest today is Nick Ripken. Nick is the world's leading expert on the persecuted church in Muslim contexts. He is a mission veteran of over 30 years, having lived in North Africa and the Middle East. He's the author of The Insanity of God and a leading voice on mission work around the world. I have had the privilege of knowing Nick and his wife, Ruth, for many years. We first met when we were both serving in East Africa, and the Lord has been gracious to allow us to continue our friendship over the last decade. The Ripkins are heroes to me, and I'm very excited for you to hear from him today. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. It's always a joy to be with you, and like you say, this journey together has been rich, and it will continue to be so. Nick, tell us a little bit about you and your family. I often like to say that Ruth and I are both PKs. She's a pastor's kid, and I'm a pagan's kid. She cannot tell you ever a time that she did not know Jesus. It was a constant conversation around her breakfast table. Her daddy would read a prayer calendar about missionaries around the world, and she and her siblings were guess what country they're in. I don't ever remember one time praying around the table. I found Christ working in a cheese factory while I was finishing high school the last 11 weeks. Uh, met Ruth two years later at a Baptist college. In her, I found a follower of Jesus that was going to go to the nations, whether anybody else went or, or not. And actually, the Great Commission was the bedrock of our relationship. Now, the fact that she's beautiful, intelligent, super smart, all of that is also a wonderful benefit. But knowing that Jesus has commanded us to go to the nations is the bedrock of our relationship. She's from a family of three. I'm from a family of six boys and a little girl. She was raised in very, very polite, godly company. I was raised about as rough as you can get. But both of us, I remember Paul reading the Bible for the first time in a dorm room at Georgetown College. And I read the book of Genesis at one setting. I read the book of Matthew at one setting. And when I got to what I later found out that Christians called the Great Commission, and Jesus said, go into all the world. What I heard was that God the Father, all I knew about the kingdom of God was that God was boss that the Bible was his book. And when Jesus said, go to all the world, I said, okay, where? And I believe from the very beginning that going to the nations was a command of God, whether it's across the street or across the oceans, and that a call was uh, what God negotiates with us about where we serve for different seasons of our lives. And, and after 35 years on the mission field, I still believe that going across the street and across the oceans is a command by God. 
Oh, that's so encouraging to hear. So you and Ruth have lived all over the world. Tell us some about your life and work overseas, the places you've lived, and maybe some of the stories about where you served. Well, I hope you've got a few days. We took a five-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old to Malawi in East Africa. At that time, it was the seventh most responsive people country to the gospel message, and we loved it. We absolutely loved it. We saw regularly baptisms of 100, 200 people. We, we very seldom failed to see a church plant over a weekend when we went to a new place. But Ruth and I and, and our two boys consistently got more and more ill with malaria to the point that a doctor called our mission and said, if you don't get Nick out of this country, he's going to be dead in, in a couple of weeks. We served eight years, brother in South Africa, living in one of the black homelands under apartheid. And I believe that was on me. I was raised in a racist family. We had words for everybody that were not godly words. And seeing what happens when we give racism a PhD, well, God needed me under apartheid, loving Blacks, loving coloreds, loving Indians, loving whites, whether they were from English background or or Afrikaans background. But God burnt, I hope, the last vestiges of persecution, I mean, of uh, racism out of my soul. But Ruth and I began to read the book of Acts together again, and we wrote on a piece of paper the word missionary. And after reading the book of Acts together for, I don't know, after many times, I wrote on that piece of paper that for Ruth and I, the row of a worker, a sent out one, what the West calls the missionary, is to go where people have seldom, have little or no opportunity to hear. Satan's two biggest desires is to keep us from having access to the kingdom of God. Failing that, Satan's second desire is to make us keep our witness to ourselves to, in essence, shut up about the kingdom of God and not witness about the the Savior that we found. And in that process, we contacted our mission board again and said, listen, we need to go. Uh, South Africa is a great place. They've had workers for 250 plus years. We need to go where no one's going. And within two months, we're in Kenya trying to get into Somalia at the height of the civil war and famine. And uh, brother, that was an eye-opener. I was in there maybe for six months before I ever met a young lady over 13 years of age, 12, 13 years of age, on up to old age that had not had the worst done to them by men eight plus times. It It was absolutely horrific. And so here we are feeding thousands, resettling thousands, trying to keep people alive in a war zone and a famine. And out of 10 million Somalis, there were only 150 believers when we enter Somalia. As severe persecution just accelerated, by the time we were kicked out of Somalia almost eight years later, only four of those believers were left alive. They killed four of my friends in 45 minutes in August of 1994. They stalked them. They planned it. They walked up behind them, they put a bullet in their head, and they threw their bodies in latrines and garbage pits. They threw them in the Indian Ocean where the sharks feed. Paul, I 
I never could understand the emotion that the women had when they went to the tomb and the, the body of Jesus wasn't there. But I understand that now because for 25 years, as our brothers and sisters and ourselves have worked in and out of Somalia, we've never had a believer's body at their own funeral. 25 years, they've killed them and they've hidden their bodies. They've thrown them away. They've burnt them. They've thrown them in oceans. And now I understand what it's like for their women, for the women to come to that tomb and, and say, isn't it bad enough that you killed Jesus, but now you've had to take his body and we don't know where he lays. I understand what it's like to, in essence, get on the plane in the New Testament and get off the plane in the Old Testament. And when people do not have access to the kingdom of God since the resurrection, uh, Somalia is what they become. Afghanistan is what they become. And that's on us. That's not on governments. And while people have responsibility for their own actions and deeds, when we fail to heed the command of Jesus, not the suggestion of Jesus, to go to the nations, Somalia is what we get. And that affects all of us. And uh, when we got kicked out of Somalia, we thought that was about the worst that could happen. And then on Easter Sunday morning, about eight days after his 16th birthday, our middle son woke us up on Easter Sunday morning with a severe asthma attack that he did not survive. And he died there in Kenya. And not only that, within two months, Ruth's mother died. Two months to the day that our middle son died. And, and that was a horrendously so crushing time. But I remember waking our 11-year-old up to tell him that his brother had died during the night. And our oldest son and, and Ruth had come to the hospital to join me there. And, and holding my wife and our boys, we said, uh, kids, we would have never chosen this for ourselves, but it's been chosen for us so that we must not waste your brother's life and we will do everything we can to glorify God. And, and there was probably over 30 people, students and adults that came to Christ through, through our son's funeral. And I had a Muslim friend walk five days from Mogadishu to be with us at that funeral. And I can, will never forget his words when I helped him get back into Somalia and I went in to close things down. And he said to the 15 co-workers that were leading the effort with us before we got kicked out of the country. And he said to them, why is it that we Muslims, we don't know what's going to happen to us when we die. We don't know until the judgment whether or not we're going to go to the hell or to the paradise. But while Dr. Ripken and Auntie Ruth and their sons were crying and other people were crying. They also were singing and laughing because they knew that their son was in the paradise. And he looked at me and he looked at 15 other strong Muslim men and said, why is it that Christians know that when they die, they get to go to the paradise and we Muslims don't get to go know that? Well, up to then, his four-hour recitation was okay. But now he risked his very life when he asked his Muslim friends and he asked me, why have Christians kept Jesus to themselves? Why have they shared him 
with the Muslim people? Why, why is it that they get to know that they get to go to the paradise and we don't? Why have they kept Jesus to themselves? Wow. And that, that led us to where, Paul, we went all over the world looking for help. How do you make Jesus known in hard places? How do you plant house churches where just being friends to me and my family can get you killed, let alone becoming a follower of Jesus? And we didn't know how to answer those questions. Paul, I, I've, I've got a, and my wife too, we've got a bachelor's and a master's from Baptist Institution. I've got a doctorate from a seminary that I treasure and love a lot. But Jesus said in Matthew 10, I'm sending you as sheep among the wolves. And just being as honest as I can, my college and seminary training shaped me and trained me to be a sheep among sheep. And so I couldn't find any place that would help me know what it's like to be sheep among wolves. I couldn't find any help. I, I went to Washington, D.C. I went to all the organizations that report on persecution. I went to school after school, mission agent after mission agency. And, and I can't find out how, to, how can we successfully share Christ and plant churches so that when persecution comes, it's for who Jesus is and it's not for who Nick is. We watched 150 believers in Somalia killed not because they were witnessing to their neighbors, their wives, and their friends, but they were killed because, one, who they worked for. Two, they were killed for who they worshipped with, outsiders. Three, they were given an 11-pound Somali Bible. When they were found with that Bible, no way to hide it. They all sleep in community. I watched in Somalia believers and Muslims killed because they were caught with this big, 11, 12, 13 pound bright green Somali Bible. And fourthly, every Somali that was paid to evangelize using Western forms of evangelization, 100% of them were killed. So I, I watched and I observed a whole existing generation of Somalis wiped out, killed, and their bodies thrown away, not because necessarily of their witness, but because of secondary reasons. And I vowed to God I would never, ever participate in that again. So where do we go for help? Now, it's in the Bible. Everybody knows it's in the Bible. But Satan has lied to us. And, and too many of us have believed the lie that that Bible is powerful. Here's the lie. All great lies have truth in them. And Satan loves for us to say, I don't think that's too strong a statement, for us to say the Bible is a, is, is a true book. It's a book of authority and power. It is the specific words of God, and it's a clear record, evil wants us to say, of what God used to do. You see, Satan wants us to follow a God and to read the Bible in past tense. What Satan does not want us to do is to follow God and believe the word of God in present active tense. And if anything that Ruth and I have learned in 35 years overseas is that everything that God has ever done in his Bible, the record of God 
God is still doing. He hasn't rested. He hasn't given up. He hasn't taken a vacation. That everything he's ever done, he is still doing. And I want to be a part of that. And we began to go to our brothers and sisters in persecution, sitting at their feet, as Timothy would sit at the feet of, of the Apostle Paul and asking them, please teach us. Teach us what the West has forgotten. Uh, teach us practices that we have not practiced. Teach us how to make Jesus known in the toughest places on the planet. And we went through all of communism. The, the Soviet Union was crashing and burning. We went throughout China. We went through everywhere that we could in the Hindu world. We went through Buddhism and animism, working our way back to the extent that we sat with now over 700 believers in 72 countries, listening to their stories from anywhere from four hours of sitting to three days as they poured into us for thousands, tens of thousands of hours. This is who Jesus is. This is how to know him fully. This is how to be sheep among wolves. This is how to hold your head up high when they've beaten the virtual life out of you and sitting at the feet of believers in persecution and being able to tell their, their stories these last 10 or 15 years. The only thing more life-changing than that was my salvation. I appreciate you sharing all of that background. I think it's really helpful for our listeners to hear some of where you've been and where you've served. And so just as you mentioned, over the past 10, 15 years, you know, you and Ruth have traveled to more than 70 countries learning about the persecution of Christians around the world. What are two to three things that kind of stand out in terms of things that you guys have learned? In the Soviet Union, the first 50 families, uh, men or women we sat with, we learned, we learned some things. I, I, I went, Paul, with about 30 pieces of information that we wanted to learn. We didn't even know what the questions were. Now there's about 130, 40 things that we're listening for that we didn't even know to ask about. And so we have sat with them all over the world. And, and I think one of the most important things all through the Soviet Union, I would ask them, when times are the worst, what Bible story, what Bible verses, what songs do you sing? And out of the first 50 men, women, families that I sat with in the Soviet Union, their life verse was Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death. Not faithful until we change pastor or not faithful until the youth directors no longer are leading our kids are all the things that we sort of get discontented by, the line that they have drawn in the sand, I will give up. I will quit. You know, I'm being facetious here. I'm going to be faithful unto death. And what we learned from them, Paul has been so remarkable. And Ruth was the first one to articulate what I'm going to say next. She said to me one day, she said, Nick, do you realize that there's no such thing as a church in freedom and a church in persecution, there's just the church. And it's always persecuted and it's always free. And she will say further that 
you know, if somebody takes a hammer or I take one and hit my little finger and the rest of my body doesn't feel the pain, well, that means that that finger somehow has become disconnected from the body. And that's what we've done. We set the persecuted church off to the side. And rather than learning from them, rather than having them be our teachers, we've been, uh, I started to say brainwashed. It might be something that's more politically correct to say, but we've been brainwashed. Uh, Our first two reactions is to feel pity from them and to rescue them. And what believers in persecution over and over and over again have taught us, and we've met Judas, we've seen groups ravaged by Judas, we've met people who have walked away and who have betrayed, and again, everything that's happened in the Bible is, is still happening, but we've met these believers all over the world, and not only have they taught us there's no such thing as a, a free church and a persecuted church, They've taught us to be faithful unto death. They've taught us that the two things that Satan desires most is to keep us from having access to Christ and make us keep our witness to ourselves. And they looked at me one day. And Paul, again, this was life-changing. They would often ask Ruth and I, why have you come? You can't imagine how hard it is to find believers in persecution. They're in house churches that change the days of the week they meet, the times of the day they meet. They move from house to house. Uh, The house church is always a, a moving target, if you will. It takes the absolute intervention of the Holy Spirit, of the living God, to access the believers in persecution, gain their trust, and then to be able to sit at their feet for tens of thousands of hours. And they'll say, where did you come from? How did you find us? How did you know about us? And when we talk to them and tell them about how we have days of prayers and weeks of prayers for the persecuted church, they will absolutely weep. Absolutely ball. One believer leader told me in, in Eastern Europe, he said the one debt we can never pay, repay the Western church is the debt of prayer that they offered up for us when we were suffering. And uh, I will never forget that. But you know why they're persecuted? They're persecuted for two reasons. They've chosen to follow Jesus, and they've chosen to share Christ and his salvation with their family, with their neighbors, with their bosses, who are often always almost communists, at the school, in the military, In the marketplace, they do two things. They have given their lives to Christ and they share with others. Conceivably, you can come to Christ in Saudi Arabia and North Korea. And if you don't tell anybody, your family or anyone else about your faith, you probably could live to a ripe old age and die in your sleep. At the point of sharing your faith in Christ is at the point where Satan no longer sends covert persecution trying to shut you up, he now will send overt persecution trying to break you down and even kill you. And so it's great to learn from them that the reasons that they're persecuted is their faith in Christ and their witness. But when they looked at me and they said, Nick, do you not understand that when you share Christ with your family and friends at work, at play, at school, That's how you identify 
with the persecuted the most. But Nick, when you keep Jesus to yourself and you don't share with your neighbor and you keep the grace of Christ from your friends and your family and you don't share him across the street and across the oceans, not only, Nick, do you fail to identify with the persecuted, you identify with our persecutors. And they said, Nick, the church are the people of Christ, supposedly, if they keep their faith to themselves, they become a persecutor. And the worst persecution on this planet is having no access to Jesus. And for me to be timid in my witness or be non-existent witness is to become a persecutor of all those who would have had access to the kingdom of God except for my silence. Wow. I never considered that when I keep my faith to myself that I join the ranks of the persecutor. And so what the believers in persecution have done is give me these kinds of stark realities to make sure that I've counted the cost and the cost of sharing Christ even unto death is not near the cost of keeping Jesus to myself and therefore condemning people to eternity without Christ. Hmm. I don't know any stronger word for the church in the West than that. A church that's worried, timid in its witness, or worried that somebody's going to reject them, worried that they're going to be embarrassed. We've got an eternity in our heart, at our fingertips, in our voice, around the table with, with meals and at work. We can determine daily whether we're going to stand with our brothers and sisters in chains or we're going to be the ones that chain people. I believe what I just said, given voice to brothers and sisters in persecution, is probably one of the most prophetic things that I can ever do. Believers in persecution, another reason they weep, is what the persecutors have done, Paul. They've said, your faith is going to die in this house. Your faith is going to die in this prison cell. Your faith is going to die in this labor camp in North Korea. And we're going to kill you and, and kill your witness. And they've said, your, your story will never get out of this cell in the Soviet Union. And now, as they've heard about the Insanity of God book and the movie and what they have realized that, that we in the West are doing for them, where the persecutors have taken their voice away, we're giving them back their voice. We're giving them back their leadership in global Christianity. Nick, as you talked about persecution, I'm just curious, as you've been tracking this over the last decade plus, what are you seeing around the world today in 2020? Is persecution changing shape or form in any way? Is it different in 2020 than maybe it was in 2005 or 2010? Oh, that's a great question because it is morphing. One of the things that, that we have to think about consistently, that the more that church is defined by property, buildings, and denominations, and, and possessions, the easier it is for the persecutors to control us. 
That's why the church stayed strong in the former Soviet Union, but didn't grow. Didn't grow really in numbers of baptisms or church plants. But in China, when they walked away or it was taken from them by the Cultural Revolution by 1948-49, the pastors had been killed, evangelists, church planters killed, missionaries killed, churches turned into brothels and, and beer halls. By the end of 1949, every believer in China knew that uh, the communists would not be content until all the believers were killed. Well, that was the same intent in the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union allowed them to keep their property, their denominations, and their possessions, and, and be able to control them in that way. But persecution, the persecutors are so creative. If something doesn't work, they go in this direction. If something doesn't work, they go in another direction. For instance, in the Soviet Union, they were smart. They let us keep our churches. And then they could just do one-stop shopping. When they wanted to go arrest and beat, imprison a, a large number of Christians, they knew they only had to go one place on a certain day a week, certain hours of that day, in a certain building, and they could wrap everybody up. Well, China believers learned to give them a moving target. And the house church movement in China, for instance, has just been astronomical, astronomical, probably the biggest movement that I know on earth, but right now it's changing. I don't know that it's changing that much in North Korea, but with the Western preoccupation, rightly so, for terrorism and people coming in from the outside to do us harm, we have led in, along with others, in face recognition software. China has got so good at this, they can see who's going into houses. I read the other day that how many million, Paul, I'll have to go look it back up, but I even read it to my wife, how many million cameras there now are. I think it was 220 million face recognition cameras that are throughout China. They can get the COVID virus under control because they can track everybody everywhere. Singapore is the same way. If somebody has the virus, they can trace you back where you've been for the last two or three weeks. And they don't need to talk to anybody. They've got you on camera. They've got your face entered into a database. And so, Paul, that question that you just asked is so astute. What the Chinese did when we first started going in there a couple decades ago, they learned that if they met in groups larger than 30 for more than three days, they got busted. So they didn't do that anymore. When they do training, they, they meet in a quiet location for three days or less. And they might have a bigger meeting, but they're going to get dispersed soon. But for their regular house church, they meet in 30 people. Like I said, they change the days of the week. They change the houses. They change the time of the week. When things got worse, they met in groups of 15. When they're having a presidential election or, or something's just made persecution accelerate, they'll meet in a group of four or five. They are that responsive, if you will, to persecution getting worse or persecution easing off. But that changes now. They're looking for patterns of people going into houses. And if they're looking at a house that normally has a family of six in it, and now they see 15, 20 people regularly going in and out of there, they're going to be a pickup on that. And so the face recognition software, the sharing of information across borders with all the computer chips and things that are going on, 
the house churches that have been leading us in evangelism, baptisms, and churches planted, they're having to figure out how to do this new. It's not that they're starting over again, but what was true 20 years ago is not true now. And as persecution has remained flexible and creative, the house church is going to have to remain flexible and creative. We do no favors to Chinese believers when we go over and pay pastors and build buildings. We've just made it easier for the persecutor to find them and to persecute them now. But with modern technology, it's not going to be true in Somalia. It's not going to be true in in Afghanistan. They don't have the technology and the wealth enough to develop a, a, a system that can track people. But in other countries, Putin in Russia, Ukraine certainly, parts of Pakistan, certainly parts of India, and the big the big one is North Korea and China. Modern technology is allowing them to follow Christians like they've never been able to follow them before. So yes, your question, your question is spot on. The persecutors are always creative. They're always changing. And the church through the Holy Spirit needs to be as flexible as their persecutors. So I'm just mentioning some ways that our churches around the world have been flexible and how they change their methodologies and their meeting times as the persecutors change. Churches, again, that are defined the way that we are by so much property and buildings, their properties and buildings are a gift from God. Denominations, gift from God in a lot of cases, in some cases not. Divisions in the body are never a blessing, really. But the more that we are in a structured Christianity buildings and properties and possessions, the easier it is for the bad guys to find us and the less likely we will be flexible because we've got too much invested in our stuff. Every American that I know, now I'm sure there's great exceptions, but Paul, let me say a family thing to you quickly. I heard growing up in a non-Christian family, I heard my grandfather and my father often say, I'd, I'd rather be poor and go to heaven than to be rich and go to hell. I thought that was Bible. It took me years after becoming a Christian and reading the Bible through to realize that's not in the Bible. And yet I was poor. I was one of the poorest families. We were one of the poorest families in our county in rural Kentucky. And I thought, well, that gave me a good shot at heaven. When I moved to rural, when we moved to rural Africa and fell in love with it, but just because I had, we had access to medical care, access to clean water, access to homeschooling, access uh, to a house, that put me in the top 5% of the richest people in Africa. And it was a huge shock to my soul to realize that I am the rich, young ruler. And I know what Jesus said to the rich, young ruler. And if we, I would say that the vast majority in the high 90% on a global stage, we as the church in the West, we are the rich young ruler. And whether the persecutors come and take it away from us, or whether, like Jesus said, take what you have, sell it, and come and follow me. In other words, get rid of whatever's hindering you from following me. 
uh, no matter what we inherited or if it's encumbering us, keeping us from serving the kingdom of God, we need to hear the words from Jesus again. We are the rich young rulers and we need to lay down whatever's hindering us from following Jesus. I appreciate you sharing that. I want to ask you a question that I ask uh, everybody that I interview, and that is this. Day after day, week after week, and month after month, what keeps you giving your life to this work? My response being, why would I want to do anything else? I think your question reflects the fear in the church that somehow going overseas and serving Jesus is a sacrifice. It's not. We actually got to grow up with our kids. Our kids shared in our, whether we were in the bush or whether we were in cities, they're an intimate part of everything that we do. Uh, I don't just visit my wife with us having two jobs. Uh, we were blessed with uh, almost being together. There were years at a time we worked together 24-7. Actually, no breaks. And then came Somalia, and I would go in country two weeks to four weeks, six weeks at a time. And then there was another period of time where we were together all the time. And then came the persecuted church. And because we had young kids at home, I was gone again, uh, four to six weeks, seven weeks at a, at a time. But Paul, you and I have known each other for a long time. I'm the same age, if not a, a little, I'm a little bit older than your father. And I can say to you, the hardest adjustment I've had in my life is coming back to America. Because I, I love I don't love the fact that people by the billions are without Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus entrusts to me, my wife, and our boys, us together, that treasure, that pearl of great price. He's entrusted that to us. And it's not that, I've, that we've ever had to go. It's that we've always wanted to go. And, you know, being overseas in, in hard places for 30, 34 or 35 years has there's a physical price that I'm paying now. And daily I ask Jesus for healing, not just because the pain is acute and sometimes nights are long because of that. I just miss having my environment being mostly defined by people who are hungry for the kingdom of God. And I just wish that Jesus would let us start over. And uh, this is a season of life that God wants us to invest in a, a lot of workers that we knew when they were single, when we knew they were children. Maybe we participate in their wedding. Our house is always filled with people coming and going overseas. And so we know that this is a different season of life. But God made Ruth and Nick Ripkin for those who have little or no access to the kingdom of God. That's in our DNA. And we hope never to escape that. Last question. What is one thing that you want everyone listening to this podcast to know? My second trip in Somalia, there was only one hospital existing within 100 miles inside or outside of Mogadishu. And the only doctor left in the country, all the others had fled, was a woman doctor, single lady who was trained by the Soviet Union. And she had a little hospital 30 minutes due east of Mogadishu, 30 kilometers and I heard of her, and I took some guards and went out there, and here's a hospital with no roof. Windows are gone. Everything's been looted, bombed. And she's trying to keep children alive. And 
I got to working with her and we would do minor surgery and set bones on children and we didn't have an aspirin for them. And the children in that hospital are sitting on beds with only the wire, no sheets, even on the wire. And I, I walked, I walked in that hospital one day and there sat this little girl sitting straight up, her poor belly so swollen and just vacant. I mean, there's nobody there just staring out in space. And I asked about her and they told me that she was the best they could find out that she uh, was uh, three years of age and she weighed 11 pounds. And I, I walked over to her, just fascinated by her stare and her pitiful condition. And I took my finger, my index finger on my right hand and rubbed up and down her cheek. And all of a sudden her eyes focused on my face and she looked at me, Paul, and she smiled from God knows where a beautiful smile lit up this little girl's face. And, and I recoiled from her in horror, thinking, in all of this, where did that smile come from? And at that moment, the Russian-trained doctor came and got me to help her set a bone on a little boy that had been hurt, had his arm broken. And, and as I left the room, going to another room, I, I said to God, I can't save this place. I can't save this country, but I will save this girl. I said, she goes home with me. In those days, uh, it wouldn't have been hard. And I went to the other room and helped treat this kid, and I came back, and she was gone. I thought they'd taken her for a bath or something. And, and I asked about her and uh, found out she had died in that last 15, 30 minutes. And there's a world of children like that, without parents or in a war zone, parents selling them in order to feed the rest of the kids and and people ask Ruth and I all the time, and here's a message for your listeners. Why did you do this? Like, why are you such a fool? Or why would you put your family at such a risk? And I say to them, what would you want me to do if that was your daughter? If that was your son, if that was your wife that had been molested all that time, I want to do unto others as I want others to do under me, but I, I want to do under God what God has done for me. We've got a Bible that's made up of an Old Testament and a New Testament. You can quote me. We're in a world that's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And while there's military responses and government initiatives, there's only one answer to this, and that's Jesus Christ. And I would have your listeners know that I think what defines us on being on one side of the equation or other is how many times have I led somebody else to Christ? Another one of my biggest hurts during the Somali years is grew out of one of the biggest blessings. As we got going with a non-government organization on a secure platform in Somalia, and among the Somali people in three countries, four countries, yeah, four countries, our job was to reach Somalis wherever they were and were working in a famine and war zone. And the word got out. I don't know how it did. The word got out. And from Christians and, you know, believers and churches from all over the world, money poured in. And we had big grants from the United Nations and Red Cross, had a huge grant from the International Mission Board, generous grant from, from Southern Baptist churches, but $10,000 a month 
came to our post office box or found us somewhere, checks, cash, money orders. And every month my wife would package that up and send that $10,000 uh, uh, back to America with someone we trusted so that there was accountability for that. And then Black Hawk went down. I was a mile away. I went there the next morning. There's an Egyptian force there that watched the whole thing and never lifted a finger. And I, I stood on the property where the Black Hawk went down, and I stood on the property where the Somalis were standing when they shot their RPG almost by mistake. And Black Hawk went down, and one of the major international news agencies filmed that part of an awful thing with one of our military personnel being drugged through the streets of Mogadishu. It was horrible. It was horrible. We treated 700 women and children the next morning who had been collateral damage in that firefight. And all of a sudden, Paul, those $10,000 from the hearts and prayers of Christians all over the world, especially my home country, stopped. And the 10000 went to $100. Now, we had millions of dollars we could access. The money's not the issue. The reason why we could work and work so successfully in Somalia for seven years, I believe, was the prayers of tens of thousands of Christians, more, and the given by hundreds of thousands of God's people. And then overnight, that prayer stopped. Once uh, our U.S. military people, were rangers, were killed, and it was horrible. Believe me, it was horrible. I was there. But God's people decided overnight that the souls of Somalis were no longer in play. We were done. And the $10,000 reduced to $100, I think, was the reason why we eventually were kicked out, because we lost the prayers. We lost people praying and fasting for the souls of Somalis, and we had to leave because we had no longer the prayer coverage or the heart of the sending churches behind that ministry. And here's my prayer for and the challenge of the churches. How, how do you engage the world? How, how do you know what's going on in the world? I ask the church everywhere I go around the world, would you do something for me for the next week or two? Would you, especially in my home country, would you turn off? And I just use as an example, not for any particular reason, but would you turn off CNN and would you turn off Fox News? And would you get on your knees and pray and ask God, God, what is it you want me to know to feel, to believe, and to do in regard to your children around the world. And God does not love me any more than he loves that, that sheikh, that imam in the mosque in Saudi Arabia. There's not one race that he loves over, over another. But how do we get our information? How do we get that causes us to interact with our brothers and, and sisters what the believers in persecution drummed into me that sometimes God needs Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. And if we write letters and petition based upon human 
rights and civil rights is defined in the West. And we write thousands and thousands of emails and texts and calls and whatever to congresses and presidents and prime ministers and parliaments. And we get Joseph out of Pharaoh's prison. The end result is the death of all of Egypt and the death of the Jews in Egypt. And sometimes God needs Joseph in jail for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we dare not get him out if God has placed him there for such a time as this. The reason we do missions, the reasons we go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and ends of the earth and back and forth is so that we can put our fingers on the pulse of God and we engage the world through the sacred realm of God's kingdom and not the secular realm of Western news agencies. Let's turn off the TV and get on our knees. Nick, thank you for sharing that. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Nick today. Please, as the Lord brings him to your mind, pray for him, pray for his wife, Ruth, and their work that they do around the world. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. More encouraging conversations are on the way. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.